take your Bibles out this morning and turn with me, if you would, please, uh, to the book of Acts as we continue our series uh, through the book of Acts on the 23rd message now entitled, Important Steps Along the Way in the Advancement of the Gospel. I think you'll see before it's said and done this morning, it may not seem like it initially, but time we're said and done, this is a very practical passage with some uh, extremely practical application uh, for you and I as believers and as the church today. Would you stand for the reading of God's Word, please? We'll begin in verse 18 and we'll read down through uh, verse 28. Acts 18, beginning in verse uh, 18 and going down through verse 28. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At Sincrea he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Father, we thank you so much for the narrative that we read in the book of Acts and the different mission stories and mission, mission ventures that, that we learn about. And Lord, we see what a passion the early church had and a passion that the Apostle Paul had to make your name known uh, throughout the world and to see men and women come to faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that as we study through this book that that sense of urgency and passion would spread to us. Lord, that everywhere we go and everything we're about in our personal lives and as a church, that we're all about winning people to Christ, discipling them, and sending people out on mission with you. Lord, I pray that you would encourage us through this message that we would not live unto ourselves, our own personal agenda, or our own desires in life. Lord, I pray that our focus would be on others, helping others 
to be all that they can be for you. Helping the church to be what it can be as a missionary force. And Lord, for that one who doesn't as of yet have a relationship with Christ, I pray that your Holy Spirit would open their hearts and minds and draw them to Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. In the Bible, we see important steps that, that take place in order for God's Word to go forward. For example, in the Old Testament, we see God calling Moses. And as God called Moses, God gave Moses a helper. And that helper was his brother Aaron. And Aaron was going to be Moses' mouthpiece. And so we see God providing for Moses in that regard. And then in addition to Aaron being his mouthpiece, there was Joshua who was his military commander. And probably little did either Joshua or Moses know on the front end that actually what God was doing in Joshua's life was giving him on the job training that eventually he would be the one to lead the children of Israel into the promised land. And then we turn to the New Testament and we see Jesus giving his disciples the Great Commission. But of course before we get to that point at the end of the Gospels we see earlier on uh, Christ spending all night in a prayer session to the Father and the next morning as he awakened he chose the twelve who were going to be his disciples he spent three years with them, discipling them, and only then did he send them out on mission. On and on we could go with this. The consistent pattern we see is God bringing new people into his fold, some of them being trained for leadership, and then being sent out, impacting more, training more, who in turn they likewise are sent out. Now in the New Testament we're told about the kind of people that God looks for in terms of character issues. What they go through in terms of preparation. And then afterwards how God blesses them and uses them. Now one thing is for sure. Everybody whom God calls he expects them to prepare themselves. To prepare themselves. And likewise, he expects the church to help prepare others. Listen to what Ephesians 4 says about this. Paul writes, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature and the fullness of Christ. So that we will be no longer children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Very important process outlined there. Now in our passage today we'll see some of those very elements coming into play. Now these verses that we look at today they cover the end of Paul's second missionary journey and the beginning of his third missionary journey. Now a casual reader might read right on past that and not pick up on it. But in verse 22, 
In verse 22, Paul's second missionary journey is coming to an end. And in verse 23, his third missionary, a missionary journey is beginning. Now what we will see are the practical steps that God uses in the advancement of the gospel. And again, a very important process we see unfolding here. Because we go from a Christian leader who refuses to lose his focus. He maintains his focus. Then he builds up others in the church. And those others in the church eventually train up another leader. Very important to see what all unfolds. Each and every one of those steps is highly applicable to you and me and the church today. Now let's start at verse 19. I, I want you to see from verse 19 a sense of purpose that directs one's life. Every Christian ought to live with a sense of purpose that directs their life. I'm going to ask them upstairs if they'd put that up on the screen, the first slide. And let's begin reading in verse 19, and, and we'll read down through verse 21. In verse 19 it says, And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. Now they desired Paul to stay and teach longer. Now folks, I think you would agree on the surface of it, that would appear to be a very good thing. But I want you to notice Paul declines that offer. Why? Well, for one thing, let me say that Paul later did come back to Ephesus. And in fact, he ended up staying in Ephesus longer than he stayed anywhere else. But for now, there were other things that were driving his life. Paul declined a good invitation in order to pursue in his life what he felt was the best use of his time and his gifts and what God was leading him to do. You see, sometimes the choices in life are not between the good and the bad. Sometimes the choices in life are between the good and the better or the good and the best. And that's what we see here. Now, there were three issues, in all likelihood, three issues that were driving the Apostle Paul here to decline this request to stay at Ephesus. Two of them were more immediate concerns, and one of them was more far-reaching. Now, that third one that's more far-reaching, I think, will have a lot more to say to you and me. But first of all, the, the more immediate concerns of why Paul declined their offer. First of all, there was this vow that he had taken. You notice Paul had taken a vow there at uh, Sincrea. Now, some writers are very, very critical of this vow. They say that what we see here, we see Paul who is tremendously opposed 
to the legalism of Judaism making what seems to be an Old Testament Nazarite vow. And so they, they write and they comment. It seems like the apostle of grace is falling back in to Jewish legalism. Now I think that's a criticism that doesn't hold water. And let me explain why. And as I do, I want to avoid something else also, okay? Sometimes in defending the Apostle Paul, preachers can make Paul sound like he's infallible. Certainly he was not. While Paul was probably the greatest Christian who ever lived and God used him to write most of our New Testament, we've got to remember the Apostle Paul was a fallen human being who was saved by grace. Sometimes there's a matter that we confuse. On the one hand, we are absolutely right in affirming the infallibility and the inerrancy of Scripture. But that doesn't mean that when the scripture records the actions of an individual that those actions by that person are always infallible. The recording of the actions of the individual are infallible but the actions themselves that are being recorded may sometimes even be sinful and wrong. Well, anyway, sometimes Christians baptize everything Paul did as being infallible because after all they say it's Paul. We want to be cautious about doing that, but nevertheless, I think the other end of the spectrum, criticism of Paul in this text is totally false and unjust. Paul is not being a legalist here. We've got to remember that, that just because Paul criticized those who tried to use the law to justify themselves does not mean that Paul should from now on as a Christian despise the law. Paul explained that battle that he had with himself back in Romans chapter 7. In Romans chapter 7 where he talks about that struggle. And he says the things that I don't want to do, I end up doing. The things that I do want to do, I end up not doing. Oh wretched man that I am, who is going to deliver me from this? In that passage, Paul explains the law. And he says the problem is not the law. The problem is me. The problem is not the law because the law is good and holy and perfect because the law was given by a God who is perfect and holy and just. And so the law can't be anything but holy and, and proper. Now, if people try to use the law incorrectly, if they try to use the law to justify themselves in the sight of a holy God, then they've used the law incorrectly. The law was never given to justify us in the sight of God. In, in writing to the Galatians, Paul said the law was given to be a schoolmaster leading us to Christ. The law is that mirror that we look at that it reveals all of our sin and all of our flaw and causes us to cast ourselves on the mercy of God. So the law is good and it has a purpose. But how we use the law might be wrong. Well Paul still tried to illustrate with his life that he wasn't against the Old Testament law. 
He only wanted his countrymen to see that Christ had fulfilled the law. Now the criticism that some writers make comes in, in, in saying that what Paul is doing here is carrying out a Nazarite vow. The Nazarite vow was talked about in Numbers chapter 6. Well, it's not clear it was a Nazarite vow at all. It may have been, but it may not have been. We're simply not told. The text is silent on that issue. It, it may have only been a vow Paul took out of gratitude to God for God's protection. Because if we were to go back and read verses 9, 10, and 11 in chapter 18, we would see that God had told Paul at the time to stay at Corinth to face all of the opposition there, not worry about that opposition, that God was going to protect him and use him in mighty ways. And in fact, God was going to bring a great deal of fruit out of his ministry there in Corinth. Well, what had God done? God had done exactly what he promised he would do. He had protected Paul. And so this vow may have only been an act of gratitude to God for God keeping his word and doing what he promised. But even if it were a Nazarite vow, that doesn't mean Paul has turned away from grace because the Bible doesn't forbid a Christian under grace from making a vow. And also think about it this way. This may be an attempt on the Apostle Paul's part to show the Jews that he still had a great respect for the Old Testament Scriptures. Because everywhere Paul went, a lot of the Jews that would start riots as Paul was preaching Jesus, they would say, here is somebody who has turned completely away from Moses. And, and Paul said to the Corinthians, he said, to the Jew, I try to be a good Jew. To the Gentile, I try to be a good Gentile to win all the more to Jesus Christ. Paul tried to identify with his audience. Well the question somebody could ask is but why would a vow keep Paul from staying in Ephesus? They wanted him to stay. Why would that have kept him from? Well it's understanding the vows they would make at the time. When they would cut their hair, they would save some of the hair. And the vow, usually a vow covered a period of time, maybe 30 days or 60 days or 90 days. At the end of the vow, they would go back to the temple in Jerusalem and they would offer a burnt offering and they would put the hair in with that burnt offering. And, and that would sort of close out the vow. There would be this ceremony at the temple in Jerusalem to close out the vow. So maybe Paul's thinking he's got to get back to Jerusalem and just simply close out the vow. Could be one reason why he didn't stay. Other scholars point out they do timelines on ancient travel and they say uh, Paul was up against winter time. And Paul really wanted to get back to Jerusalem to celebrate the Jewish Passover. Of course from a Christian perspective because Christ is our Passover lamb. But he wanted to get back by springtime and celebrate Passover. But shipping and the shipping lanes in ancient times, many of them were closed during the winter months because of currents, dangerous currents and dangerous storms. 
Paul knows if he stays at Ephesus and, and doesn't get right on back to Jerusalem, he's going to be delayed and he may never make it back by, by Passover. And so he goes. Well, those are two reasons why Paul may not have stayed at Ephesus and honored their request. But folks, the one I really want us to focus on a minute is the third one. What I think, what I personally believe is directing Paul's life. Paul had a larger purpose after he got back. After he got back to Jerusalem and Antioch, he wanted to launch out again and he wanted to revisit those churches that he had planted during his first and second missionary journeys. You remember the first journey? Back in Acts chapter 13, the, the, the disciples were worshiping together in the church at Antioch. And the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Saul and Barnabas to the work to which I have called them. And the church set them apart, laid hands on them, prayed for them, and sent them out on mission. Immediately Paul and Barnabas launch out and they go through the region of uh, uh, Galatia. Paul's an apostle, Paul's a missionary, but Paul is also a pastor at heart. He's a pastor at heart. So he doesn't want to get caught up at Ephesus right now. He believes it to be the will of God for him to get back so he can check on those new churches that he's planted and those new believers there and the leadership there and see what they might need and, and see if he can help them be stronger in the Lord. You see, folks, there's this sense of mission and purpose that drives his life. And here's my question to you this morning. Is there a sense of purpose and mission that drives your life? Paul's vision of his life was to stay on course with what God had called him to do. And because of that, Paul was able to say no to certain things. For all Paul knew in the will of God, God might eventually lead him back to Ephesus. And again, that's exactly what God did. God led him back there. And as I mentioned in the long run, he ended up staying at Ephesus longer than he stayed anywhere else. But for now, there's this other sense of mission that is beckoning to him. There's this burden on his heart to check on these other churches and disciples and see how they are doing. He's living according to a purpose that God has given to him. You know, as Christians, we need to live with a missionary purpose, you know? We need to live with a missionary purpose. God has not put you and me on this earth just to take up air and tread water. When God saves us, God gifts each one of us and God calls us to follow him. The outworking of following him might be a little different. Some might end up being a teacher, others a missionary, uh, another a prayer warrior, different, different gifts. But God wants each of us living our lives. The, what, over, what should overshadow all of our lives 
is God's purpose for my life. God's purpose. Joining God in His mission. Folks, if we don't have a, a, any type of missionary vision for our lives, you know what's going to happen? We're going we're gonna to just let the nitty-gritty of everyday life, the daily grind of life, the pressures of just supporting a family and making a living, we're going to get tied up in that, and 10, 15, 10 or 15 years are going to click off on, our, on the timetable of our life, and we will have done nothing of kingdom value. There may be some of you sitting here this morning and say, you know what, eventually I, I, I'd like to take a mission trip. I'd like to take a mission trip. Well, probably until you come to one of our interest meetings on a mission trip, get the paperwork and see what all's involved and do the training and go to the doctor and get the shots if it's an international trip. Probably until you go through some of those steps, guess what? You're going to say, you know what? I really want to do a mission trip. Five years from now, guess what? I'd really like someday to do a mission trip. Twenty years from now, you know what? I've always intended to do a mission trip. One of these days I'd like to do a mission trip. We're just going to keep going like that. Paul lived with this sense of mission and purpose that, that drove him. I truly believe as Christians when we come together for worship we, we mean to do many of the things that we talk about. We really do but until we take some action steps life is just going to keep getting busier and busier and busier and we will never end up doing those things that we talk about. Well Paul believed he needed to get back and strengthen those churches. So he got with it. But I want you to notice while he did that, he also told them, if God wills, I'll come back and see you. Because God can change your plans or my plans at any time. I think about James in James chapter 4. Remember those believers he was writing to? He said, uh, some of you are saying we're going to go to this uh, such and such city and, and we're going to buy and sell and trade and make a profit and we're going to set up this business and that business. And, and, and James says, you never stop to realize that your life is but a vapor. You may not even have tomorrow. James said, instead, you ought to be saying, if God wills. Is there a missionary purpose that you live with, and do you live under that realization, if God wills, God can change your plans at any time? Folks, that's the heart that the Apostle Paul lived with. And it's so important to Christians today. What's, what's the number one Christ, uh, question a lot of Christians ask today? Any pastor will tell you, any staff member will tell you, the number one question people ask today. It's on all the list. The number one question people want to know about in the church pew. What is the will of God? Number one question. Well, you know how the will of God comes to you? Romans 12, 1 and 2, Paul says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, and be not 
conform to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you might be able to prove what is the good and perfect and acceptable will of God. It takes work. Daily you and I have to seek God. Daily we have to be in His Word. Daily we have to be seeking Him and His will. Ephesians 5, Paul, Paul commanded, understand what the will of the Lord is. The will of the Lord is not going to drop down your chimney at 11.05 tonight. You're going to have to be in the Word of God and in prayer and seeking the face of God in order to discern the will of God but discerning the will of God you and I need to do it folks we need more people today like Paul living with that sense of purpose of knowing and doing the will of God that shaped and determined everything he did in his life Everything Paul did in his life, it, it would appear as you read the New Testament that every decision he made, every trip he went on, every church he became a part of, he lived with this sense of purpose. What would Jesus do? What does God want me to do? And that drove him in his life. Contrast that with too many of us today. We're just living our lives every day, doing our own thing and getting by. And one of these days, we might get around to God's business. Folks, live with a sense of purpose. Second thing I want you to see here that has tremendous application to us today is a commitment to build up other believers. In verse 22 it says, When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Now notice what's happened here. Paul landed at Caesarea. When it says he went up and greeted the church, it is assumed by that that what Luke means is the church at Jerusalem. The church at Jerusalem. He went up to the church at Jerusalem and then after leaving the church at Jerusalem he went to the church at Antioch. Why Antioch? That was his sending church. That was the church from which Paul and Barnabas on their mission ventures set out from. And so at the close of a missionary journey, Paul would always go back to the sending church that had sent him and commissioned him and he would give a report to them. That's evidently what he's doing here. Now after that, it's important to see what he does next. Verse 23 says that he departed and he went from from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Phrygia strengthening all of the disciples. Would you underscore that in your Bible? That is such an important verse. Folks, let's not pass over that, okay? Strengthening all the disciples. Remember the great commission Jesus gave? Matthew 28, 19 and 20. What is the imperative in the Great Commission? What is the command in the Great Commission? It's to make disciples. 
Now, of course, in order to make disciples, it, it's assumed there you've got to obviously, first of all, do evangelism. Evangelism is so important. And that's the work of sowing the seed of the Word of God and, and being used by God as you see Him bringing people out of darkness and into His glorious light. But evangelism in and of itself is not the ultimate goal. Just making converts is not the ultimate goal. What's the ultimate goal in the Great Commission? making disciples. In the New Testament God talks about believers being equipped and discipled so that they will not be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. The New Testament emphasizes the need for believers to grow. The writer of Hebrews writing to his audience chastened them. He said, you know what? By now I ought to be able to expect many of you to be leaders and teachers. But I'm still having to give you milk because you won't grow up. 2 Peter 3.18 Peter closes out his two letters of 1 and 2 Peter by saying but grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. In other words you read your New Testament and God wants mature believers. God is after disciples. Christians who grow. Now, if we're going to be growing, we'll be giving attention to the Word of God, we'll be bearing fruit in the Spirit, and we will be invested in ministry. A disciple is somebody who is growing, and they are reproducing themselves, and they are investing themselves in others. A disciple is an active worshiper who is engaged in ministry. Paul was all about that. In Colossians 1.28 it said, uh, he said his goal, his passion was to be able to complete, uh, uh, present everybody to Christ complete, mature. Paul was all about developing people, winning them, teaching them, strengthening them in the things of the Lord. And that's what this verse right here says he was doing. He was strengthening the disciples. Now I mentioned to you last week, when the, when the Bible talks about love of the brethren, that's what it's talking about. Folks, it's, the Bible's not talking about just getting together with another couple in the church and going out for dinner. That's not what the Bible means when it says love of the brethren. Now that's part of it, Christian fellowship. But according to the New Testament, love of the brethren is when you and I are invested in a local church and we are praying for, encouraging, and strengthening other believers. That's love of the brethren. It's more than just getting together with a buddy in the church and going and playing golf. Paul loved the brethren. He was doubling back around and he was investing himself. He was strengthening the brethren. His goal was to help there to be strong individuals, healthy individuals who would make up healthy congregations who would be involved in healthy missions. 
See, that's what disciples do. Healthy disciples group together, result in healthy congregations. Healthy congregations, in turn, go out and do the work of the Lord. You know what church leaders and denominational leaders are bemoaning today? All over America, America is littered, littered. The landscape of America is littered with unhealthy churches. Unhealthy churches that all they do is fuss and gripe and backbite and gossip and slander and do everything to tear one another down. And I thank you that you're not a part of that. But folks, if you read much about denominational life and, and, and uh, Christian life across America and church life and what church leaders are observing and seeing, that, that is exactly the face of way too much of Christianity in the land. Unhealthy congregations made up by unhealthy people. Unhealthy people make unhealthy congregations and then those congregations are not about the work of the Lord. Paul wanted to strengthen believers so they'd be healthy congregations and a healthy mission that would emanate out from them. So Paul always had others in mind. Himself, the first point that we covered a moment ago, as far as his own life, he was going to live under the shadow of the will of God. The will of God was going to shadow everything about his life individually. But then he thought of others too. He wanted to bring others into that and strengthen other believers. That's a good pattern for you and I to emulate today. Third thing I want you to see here. The development of leaders. The development of leaders. Beginning there in verse 24 says, Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him and explained to him the way of God more accurately and when he wished to cross to Achaia the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him when he arrived he greatly helped those who through grace had believed for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus now in this section of the passage the spotlight goes off of the apostle Paul so just for a minute Paul himself fades into the background. Now the spotlight lands on who? Apollos. Apollos. Now remember, Paul couldn't stay in Ephesus for the time being. Paul has left Aquila and Priscilla there. Aquila and Priscilla were the couple that we met last week when Paul went to Corinth. They were Jews who had become Christians. They were tent makers. They were of the same trade as the Apostle Paul. Remember what I said last week? Aquila and Priscilla had lived in Rome. And in 49 A.D., Emperor Claudius kicked, kicked all of the Jews out of Rome. He did this over riots the Jews were having over one named Crestus. 
It's believed he meant Christus, the Latin for Christ. What was happening in Rome, same thing that happened in Thessalonica. When Paul showed up in Thessalonica preaching Jesus, the Jews started a riot there because he was preaching Jesus. Well, evidently the Jews were starting riots in Rome when, the, when Christians were bringing the gospel to Rome. Claudius got tired of all of the religious battles and fights in, in his city. And so he expelled all of the Jews out of Rome. Aquila and Priscilla got caught up in that because even though they had become Christians now, they were still Jews, so they had to leave Rome. Where did they end up? They ended up in Corinth. And then Paul came to Corinth. They became instant companions in the cause of the gospel because they were all tent makers by trade. Well, when Paul leaves Corinth, they leave with him, which shows how close all of them had become. They leave Corinth, they go to Ephesus, and when Paul leaves Ephesus here, he leaves Aquila and Priscilla there. According to 1 Corinthians 16, 19, the church at Ephesus begins to meet in their home. Finally, they get back to Rome. By the time Paul wrote, writes the letter to the Romans, the epistle to the Romans, in chapter 16 of Romans of that letter, he says, greet Aquila and Priscilla. So now they're back in Rome. So Aquila and Priscilla started in Rome, got kicked out of Rome with the other Jews. They went down to Corinth. They met Paul. They worked with Paul together for 18 months. They're building up the church at Corinth. They all left. They went to the church at Ephesus, Paul left to go, go back to his first churches. They stayed at Ephesus for a while. Then they end up back at Rome. Now Apollos, but before they leave and go back to Rome, Apollos arrives in Ephesus. He was from Alexandria, which was a very educated and elite town in the ancient world. They had a famous university there, and it was the home to the Jewish philosopher Philo. Now, Apollos is described here as being eloquent, and he had a very good grasp on the Scripture. You'll recall when Apollos ministered later to the Corinthians, there was a group at Corinth who really liked Apollos. Because he was a silver-tongued orator. He was eloquent. And some at Corinth said, we're of the Apollos group. Others said, no, we're of the Simon Peter group. And others said, no, we're of the Apostle Paul group. And Paul wrote to the Corinthians and said, what are you doing, folks? Christ is not divided. We're all servants of the same Lord. One sows, another waters. But it's God that gives the increase. Well, Apollos was eloquent. He was competent in the scripture. He was also a fervent man. The text says here, fervent in spirit. You know what we would say today of Apollos? We would say, man, this guy's on fire. This guy's on fire. There was a problem, though. While being a believer, he only knew about the baptism of John, which was only a baptism of repentance. And so while having a good basic understanding of things and understanding that Jesus is the Messiah, nonetheless, his doctrinal foundation was a bit weak. A weak doctrinal foundation. 
And so notice what this couple by the name of Aquila and Priscilla did. They took him aside and they explained to him the Word of God more accurately. Now folks, this didn't take, this didn't, this didn't transpire in five minutes. Most agree that this couple probably took a long period of time with Apollos equipping him. Maybe the first time they heard him speak they could tell there was a real deficiency in his doctrinal standing and so maybe they had the, the gift of hospitality and Priscilla had cooked up a big lunch and said, hey preacher, come over to lunch today. We want to talk to you about a few things. So they had the preacher over for lunch. By the way, that's a pretty good thing to do, isn't it? <laughs> but what they were able to do over coming days, weeks, months, we don't know how long, was simply invaluable. Invaluable to Apollos and invaluable to the church. They were able to give Apollos more training. More training. First of all, I want you to think with me a moment about Apollos' shortcomings. The Bible says in 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus that elders need to have certain qualities or, or, or characteristics about them. And then Paul said in those letters, you need to be very, very, very careful about laying hands on someone. I'm talking about uh, ordination. You need to be very cautious about laying hands on somebody too quickly. Because you lay hands on them too quickly and they don't have a good foundation, they might leave your fellowship and go out and... There's no telling what they'll start teaching or doing. And you know what Paul said? If you have laid hands on them and commissioned them and sent them out, whatever sin they go out and do, guess what God does? He puts that sin also to your account. You, uh, their, their sin gets laid to your charge too. And that's why Paul said to Timothy, you better not lay hands on somebody too quickly and send them out. Because you're going to end up uh, sharing in their sins. Folks, something we need to be careful of today. I am amazed today at it takes virtually absolutely nothing if anybody wants to go and start a church nowadays now on the one hand that's good church planning that, that ought to be the emphasis of the church but anybody can go out and do it virtually nothing's required not much at all is required if it's some type of independent fellowship there's no accountability no anything Danger, danger, danger. I think we potentially do a huge disservice to the church. It is a crying shame the limited knowledge of theology and church history that some ministers have. Basic monumental decisions that have been made in the history of the church they don't know anything about. They're clueless. 
And you see them go out and do things that have been settled a long time ago. And, and you think, this is crazy sometimes what we do today. Because so little is required of, of leaders and what they have to know before they can be leaders in the church. We'll, we'll send anybody out. It's why I've started saying to some of our young men that come to me and say they've been called to the ministry or a man in a, say he's in a financial career or something in his 30s or 40s and comes to me and says, I've been called to the ministry. I tell him, if you've been called to the ministry, it is a call also to prepare. Go and prepare. And we've seen some do that. Valuable. Some don't. They don't, want, they don't want any type of training or accountability, but then they might come back to me later on and want me to support them, and I'm inclined not to. Dangerous things that, that are done. But folks, I, I, again, I, I want you to see what this couple does. Here, here is this guy... Here, here's a guy who's a potential leader and here's a lay couple in the church. Now understand who this lay couple is, Aquila and Priscilla. Remember they were with Paul in Corinth for 18 months. It is believed that that 18 months the apostle Paul was training them. They had a good foundation. Now in turn they train Apollos. And he's humble enough to accept their training. Speaks well of him. They help him get trained in a, in a better doctrinal foundation. But you see the pattern of what's going on here? This is the 2 Timothy 2.2 pattern. In 2 Timothy 2.2, Paul says, The things that you have heard from me in, in the presence of everybody, commit the same thing to faithful men or reliable men who will be able to train others also. There's this chain and, and this discipleship or training process. We train others. We disciple others. Others who were raised up as leaders. And then they go out and they identify others who they in invest their lives in and they train up others and send them out. And, and the process multiplies itself. The training process. What we read right here is, is the beauty of the church the beauty of the church a man who needed a better doctrinal foundation a lay couple was able to train him and disciple him and give him that better foundation and then you know what happened with Apollos he said I would like to go over to Achaia so they got him to a point that they could write letters of recommendation and send him on to Achaia well, you know, you know what was in Achaia where Apollos landed down? Guess which church? We've already talked about it a little bit. The church at Corinth. Apollos ended up in Achaia at Corinth. And there at Corinth, he ended up having a tremendous ministry. And I think it goes back to a lay couple by the name of Aquila and Priscilla. And then Aquila and Priscilla's training goes back to the Apostle Paul when they were with him for 18 months at Corinth. The training process.
preparation. The preparation and development of leaders. So three very practical and important points I want you to see in our text this morning. Every one of them can be emulated in us. Number one, every one of us ought to have that sense of purpose and living according to the will of God the way the Apostle Paul did. Folks, don't live just for the things of this world. God's called you and me to more than just the things of this world. This world is passing away. Everything in this world is passing away. It's going to be gone one day. You invest your life in only the things of this world and guess what? You're going to get to the end of your life and have nothing to show for your life. An individual who lives his or her life for the will of God. Secondly, that individual who strengthens and encourages other believers in the church. And then thirdly, other believers still who are able to help raise up and develop the next generation of leaders. And through this all, you see God working. You see time being invested, a lot of sweat, blood, and tears, I'm sure. A lot of time, a lot of effort, a lot of preparation. But through individuals focused on God's will who strengthen God's church, and then thirdly who train up other leaders, God's work marches on. And churches are multiplied and the kingdom of God marches forward and more people are reached for Jesus Christ. I want to ask you to bow your heads with me this morning for a moment. Maybe, maybe this morning you would need to admit perhaps you have not lived like we see the Apostle Paul living. The will of God drove everything about his life. Maybe you need to be honest with God this morning. If it's true of your life, say, God, you know what? I, quite frankly, I'm just, I'm living for the present. I'm living for this world, what I can see, touch, and feel. I'm just treading water and trying to get by every day. Does God need to make some adjustments in your life to get you focused in on living for His will? What adjustments do you need to make in that? Secondly, think about your life when you come to church. Is church all about you? What's in it for me? Or do you look around you at other believers and think, how can I be a blessing to them? How can I pray for them and encourage them? How can I help the witness of the church to be better and stronger? Is there anything that needs to change there? <laughs> 
And then lastly, are you maybe an Aquila and Priscilla type person? And there's somebody that you know needs some, needs some discipling. And God's put that person in your life. You see potential in them like Apollos. But they need an older, wiser, more experienced Christian to, to help them along and help them to grow. Will you reach out to that person? the way that Aquila and Priscilla reached out to Apollos. Or maybe you're that individual who needs more training and you need to humble yourself enough to go to somebody and say, hey, maybe it's a staff member, maybe it's a deacon, maybe it's a teacher. Say, hey, would you spend some time with me in helping me to understand the Christian faith and, and, and the scriptures better? Because I know God wants to use me in my life, but, but, but I, don't, I don't know much. Would you help me? Go to that person and ask them. Don't be afraid. Lord, as your people, help us to make any change we, that we need to make either individually or collectively so that we can be in the dead center of your will. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.